0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Regan Gillam, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Tina Shrestha, who is the author of the book Surviving a Sanctuary City, Asylum-Seeking Work in Nepali, New York, published by the University of Washington Press. Dr. Shresta, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Regan, for inviting me to the New Books in Anthropology, um, I feel very honoured and privileged to be here speaking in, uh, to you about this book. Um, yeah, I the think... book, uh, I, I, I recently got my author copy, so,
0: since I live in Japan, you know, it, it took a while. To That's, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So I'm, I'm really excited that you're here to talk about the book. And um, I'm excited because for many reasons, but I'm excited to have a fellow Cornelian here who did their PhD in anthropology. And I'm grateful that I had you to accompany me when I was you know, in graduate school and I'm I'm grateful that we were able to accompany each other on these journeys to write these books and to see them come to fruition is just, is like really wonderful. And so, um, so I know you, but can you talk about yourself a little bit to introduce yourself to the listeners and, um, you know, tell us about yourself and how you came to write this book, Surviving the Sanctuary City.
1: Sure. Uh, and, and same here, Regan, I think uh, writing 500 words a day in this, anthropology department in cornell really uh, was the beginning of how this book right, came to be conceptualized but um so there are two accounts of how i came to write this book um the first one is more um academic sort of academic linear trajectory and field research circumstances and the second one is more uh, non-linear and i'll say uh, personal so i'll start with the latter account and uh reflect on how uh, it actually weaves in and out of the former, but never quite separate from it. Uh, and then I think I'll uh, maybe sum up, uh, you know, uh, who it's uh, from, from talking about how I came to write this book to who its intended audiences are. Um, so I have a particular interest in Nepal and the Nepali speaking migrant communities and diaspora, um, as you know, I was born in Nepal. And my uh, family came to the U.S. when I was 13. We settled in Kentucky. <clears throat> so, yes, growing up in a um, you know, small, tight-knit Nepali migrant community um, in Kentucky and relatives elsewhere in the States, I was already surrounded by uh, migration stories, stories of everyday hardship um, brought upon um, mainly by sort of underemployment, unemployment for many years, um, downward socioeconomic mobility Um, sort of uprooting of these familiar social lives, Um, and then extensive networks, but then compounded by the gradual and persistent isolation and experience of marginalization for many working class migrants and families in the suburbs, um, as well as in the cities. But so even for those who enjoyed some financial security, job stability, um, um, there was still this sort of dilemma of uh, what I call surviving rather than thriving in America. So these stories were everywhere. So that that's sort of my, I guess, the uh, personal account of um, a personal experience. But then after college, finishing college in Kentucky, um, went to grad school in New York. And um, I guess you can say it was a ticket out of Kentucky and is also my working class family background right uh, getting into Colombia that's a I'll touch I'll go into it later but I actually never you know intended to study about nepali migration or uh, migration per se I mean I entered the field of anthropology mainly because of the opportunity to do field research in Nepal and um, you know just the sheer idea that someone will pay me to go back and forth between Nepal visit relatives sort of um, Learn more about people, society, place that I, uh, my parents, my family had left uh, over a decade. It was just an appealing um, lifestyle, and at Cornell, I obviously got uh, summer funding. Uh, <coughs> sorry, to do uh, exactly that—to go to Nepal, um, you know, during the summer, um, preliminary field site research and whatnot. So during that period, I was exploring uh, many research possibilities uh, for dissertation and being a 1.5 migrant, uh, I guess, immigrant or Nepali-American who had not actually lived in Nepal for uh, more than a decade, um, these visits allowed me um, glimpses sort of on the lived realities of people there. But also uh, it was this realization that I had um, <coughs> been absent for uh, during one of the um, Greatest, you political and sociocultural transformation in a country's history. That was the decade-long civil war. We'll talk about it uh, later, in your um, other question. But uh, but these visits were still so important that it provided a, a foundation to sort of understanding a different uh, why sort different political moments people migrated and what were the conditions and for which groups. So it all depended on both. The political history of the country, but also what was happening in the U.S. where, um, where I was living and um, with my family. So, <coughs> so before entering Cornell's Anthropology program and moving to Ithaca, I'd already been living in New York City a little over three years, um, a year and a half of which I'd spent completing my master's at uh, Columbia University it's interdisciplinary uh, liberal studies master's program with a focus on South Asian studies. Um, so um, <clears throat> after moving to New York City, I was m- actually meeting people with shared um, like similar experiences of migration, like my right, growing up in, um, in the American suburbs and not speaking your language in public, right? And seeing families, uh, relatives sort of uh, struggle with unemployment, language, um, lack of health, insurance benefits, all of this, sort of the palpable fear of being policed um, in in their daily lives. And so, you know, there's that. um, And often these unspoken and marginal experiences in the suburbs were right and center in New York City, in Queens, where I found myself, I lived in different parts of Queens during my time. But there's It was interesting because while attending columbia university south asian uh, south Asian doing South Asian studies, I noted this obvious disjuncture right, between courses I was taking, including south Asian history literature um anthropology like postcolonial studies feminist gender studies, and whatnot, and then the actual lives of people <clears throat> who lived just a train ride away in queens um and I think it was this discomfort so so that, that's one of the reasons how I came across uh, or, or rather I'd come across a lot of books by South Asian anthropologists, ethnic studies, um, mainly from you know, India and uh, Pakistan diaspora. So diaspora literature in the U.S. And there's not a single book about Nepali uh, population or Nepalese, um, um migration stories and history, settlement and very different experience of legalization. I mean, fair enough. It was still fairly sort of uh, Nepalese when newly arrived, or newly arrived, you know, at the time. This was early two thousand, so they only been <coughs> post nineties. There was a mass migration of Nepalese. so this fair, fair enough. You know, wasn't being taught, um, but just the just noticing this this parallel world of other South Asians and Asian Americans in Queens, were working class non English speakers with minimal, you know, cultural capital who had uh, been living there, and they weren't. There was just a slightly different ex- migration experience. They weren't going back and forth between, uh, the, the, India, Pakistan, Nepal, or New York City. They were living. So that en- that that encounter was both, uh, um, you know, similar, but I guess my own family's experience fit somewhere in the middle um, of all this. Um, so that I think that sort of. Noticing that unequal relationship and different migration histories and legalization struggles of people, I was slowly becoming aware of. But at the time, it was just observing and taking notes and whatnot. Um, And it was uh, actually, especially those initial years of living in New York City that I became immersed in the world of uh, community, migrant community activists, advocates and organizers, not only from South Asian um, migrant communities, but also from Latinos and other First and second generation, you know, immigrant families. So it was just uh, this cross what they call it, you cross ethnic solidarities that involve raising awareness on immigration laws, labor policies, affecting migrant workers there. So it was just I was just sort of observing there a lot, learning. You know, wasn't doing sort of ethnographic research at the time, um, <coughs> but all of these, in hindsight, provided kind of uh, um, provided an important insight into what the book talks about and I think I actually draw on and these are the personal um, and uh, sort of uh, personal histories that you know you you see drawing on um, in the book so it's gradually learning I mean at the time how migrant labor and legality were interconnected and affecting lives of many uh, community members especially in the context of uh, New York City and Queens and um and at the same time, the summer visits in Nepal was giving me a background for that, uh, w- without knowing at the time, background for the actual research that I would then do in, um, in New York City. And uh, for, so that's how, let's see, another you know, book, or the dissertation research was conceptualized at the time. Um, so through the book, then, <clears throat> through this book, I want to first direct like, this reader's attention away from this quintessential upper, you know, middle class South Asian immigrant story, um, which is invariably about um, the hardworking first generation family that produce successful second and third generation immigrants, and to focus on the struggles of uh, the first generation really to make ends meet and kind of it reproduces right in subsequent generations as well so for uh, decades, and it's an attempt. Uh, through the book. It's an attempt to make room um, for these voices, right? Like for the first generation migrant diaspora communities. The majority of I guess we call the quote unquote failed attempts of uh, living this American dream. That accounts for the successful <clears throat> South Asian <laughs> diaspora. Um, like I always like to say like the you know the crazy rich Asians is the crazy non, it's not not the other version of the non you know crazy uh rich Asians or South Asians. And secondly um, and it's related to the, to the first one is many people um, so the struggles were also often related to these like liminal legalities they legal there's prolonged uh, temporary statuses, and because of that, they were laboring under harsh conditions um, in the, in the tri-state areas of uh, new york new jersey connecticut and, and actually in found employment in the um, within the same so, so South Asian diaspora, diaspora community, sort of their uh, socioeconomically mobile uh, counterparts. So another so the another reason was that uh, so some of the same people like people who are stuck in these uh, legalities, laboring under harsh conditions for decades and generations, even. Um, you know they're just toiling away, not knowing if and when they all get a, a permanent residency in the US or which means, you know, not knowing whether or not they'll be reu- reunited with their families, like their kids left behind, again, like for a decade or longer. And this kind of marginalization of intergenerational experience that is seldom articulated in the wider South Asian literature, South Asian American literature, and even um, you know, anthropology courses I was uh, taking. Um, so whether it is written about or tangentially referenced, reference it is either framed under sort of ethno-national difference or explained away by uh, referring to sort of you know interethnic exploitation based on gender and caste that are reproduced uh, within the diaspora. And so while this is not untrue, yes, you know this uh, based on gender and caste hierarchies and how uh, the regional differences apply but such explanations also do not account for larger social structure in the States, like upon, like after having been migrated, what, do, what, you know, how, how do these, let's say, even if it is an inter-ethnic exploitation, then how are these reproduced and, what, and sustained, right. And then sort of manifest in different ways, the condition of uh, migrant labor, um, like that subordination is not, it's inseparable from the related history of immigration laws and policies in the U S and, different like during different political moments so i wanted to acknowledge not just the uh, not only the undocumented status of migrants or how that creates all these other problems related problems but also actually the undocumented labor of workers in the migrant and uh, diaspora communities and what i call uh, like silent and silenced uh, workers and how it has an impact far-reaching impact on the community itself how it's viewed how it's sort of uh, by community members itself, so so besides initiating conversation about um, <clears throat> marginalization, I also want hopefully the book will also initiate conversation about privilege within the Nepali and South Asian and larger Asian American groups and circles. That the focus on particular segment of the population here as asylum you know, seekers and migrants in their precarious uh, labor conditions. I wanted the book to resonate also with uh, with the marginalized. Migrant youth, particularly of 1.5 or second generation immigrants with lower socioeconomic uh, background. Um, I was thinking of uh, dreamers, right, and who have come of age, and especially minoritized youth, uh, migrant youth who have witnessed to their relatives and loved ones and uh, not reunited with families for you know a decade, and how <clears> they've <throat> witnessed their uh, parents' precariousness, kind of visceral and long-term impact than those social processes have had on their own education, upbringing, um, and their, um, their career aspirations perhaps. So in other words, um, the book is also an attempt to uh, acknowledge and validate the lived experience of both the parents and let's the grandparents, so generation of these dreamers and youth and uh, uh, activists and migrant advocates across the US. So to um, so, to move on to you know who its intended audiences are, and for all the reasons that I've just mentioned, um, it's precisely it's written for the uh, wider, like a various audience in mind. Um, as an academic book, it is written for scholars, practitioners, obviously students of anthropology, people interested in uh, looking into immigration enforcement in the U.S. The contemporary immigration laws and policies, and those. Uh, interested in refugee and critical asylum studies, Asian and South Asian diaspora. But as a documentation of the worldviews and lived experience of these marginalized communities, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm hoping that it adds to the ongoing efforts and dialogue around migrant advocacy organization, uh, community organization activism in uh, cities like New York in the North, but also um, elsewhere um, for... um, Larger South Asian migrant communities and non-South Asian migrant communities outside the U.S. As I've uh, as I've been away from the U.S. for almost a decade now and living in different um, major Asian cities, and some of these questions are still are not um, you know um, complete uh, are relatable. Not the asylum seeking obviously is very different, but the immigration and the migrant labor, how it works, um, the infrastructure around migration, um, are not very different, and the marginalization for generations of people in these uh, cities, global cities. So as an analysis of, uh, coming back to the book, the analysis of the contemporary US immigration laws and asylum policies, the book um, would be of interest to policymakers and immigration officials, um, as it shed light into the ways asylum bureaucracy and documentation works and how they are experienced not only individually, but also how it has uh, Far-reaching impact on uh, marginal communities. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, so I have actually spoken with USCIS, uh, US Immigration US uh, US and Citizenship Services, like the Department of Policy Strategies, and um, and asylum officers. So during book talk, and you know, they were very interested, and and obviously they only talked about the chapters that were relevant to that audience, and. Um, and, I, and, that, and that has been actually ongoing, the conversation with them. And fourth intended audience, I think I've already talked about is the larger uh, Nepali diaspora um, and migrant communities, not only in the US or global north, but also um, in places closer to home, like from you know India to Malaysia and Qatar, um, and to Japan and Hong Kong, um, <clears throat> where actually my country research is based. Uh, based on sort of the immigration, uh, Nepali migration trajectories in these places. So, um, yeah, I think I sort of expanded the question from, you know,
0: how I came to write
1: uh, this book to who its audiences are. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for that. That was, that was great. Um, It was really important, I think, to talk about, you know, who you wrote the book for. Um, Usually we have to think about this anyway when we write the proposal for the book or the prospectus, so... Um, you know, so we were forced to articulate this, um, you know, whenever we are also conceptualizing the book and bringing it through the the publishing process. So I think that, I think that's great to, to share that. And, um, and when you talked about this disjuncture that you saw between the classes that you were taking in the university and in, in like anthropology and social science classes and the literal people living in the neighborhood, just to train right away is so important to hear. I think for um, students, um, other you know people interested in migration and these and these questions, because it you know it really just goes to show like this is where these ideas come from. You know, they they come from our lived experiences, our observations, um, you know, things that we're that we're looking at. So. I think that's always important to hear for other people when they're, when they're thinking about their own projects. And, you know, these questions of migration and immigration are really only becoming more central and more prescient, not, not less. So the book is very, uh, you know, pertinent to, to think about right, you know, right now. Um, and so that, that leads me to the next question, I guess, which is about the arguments for the book. Um, and so the book is going to repeat um, it's called Surviving the Sanctuary City, Asylum Seeking Work in Nepali, New York. And one of the arguments I saw the book making, and you kind of just talked about that a little bit, was the process of seeking asylum is work or labor. Um, but I wanted to invite you to to talk about, um, you know, what the book is about and, you know, what you're arguing in the book.
1: Great. Oh, thank you. Thank you for yeah jumping right you know into the argument of the book, the key argument. Uh, yes, and you know, as you correctly pointed out, the book is arguing that asylum seeking uh, process itself how how is it a work in asylum seeking as work, how it's seen as work. So one of the book uh book's key argument is that asylum seeking provision in the 25th century U.S. Uh, functions. To incorporate low wage, what uh, anthropologists like Nicholas and other you know, you know, said deportable migrants, right, Deport, uh, deportable migrants into the society through their own labor subordination, and I add to that conversation to say, well, how it's done through this protracted condition of legality, aka you know, seeking asylum, like asylum seekers, for it, it just can go on and on, you know, as you've seen, but uh, but rather than separating labor from legalization in this case asylum legalization i'm arguing that the contemporary asylum process itself you know is part of uh, interior immigration enforcement and how it works and it, how a how it works as interior for uh, immigration enforcement within the borders because you always hear of asylum seekers and you know, the, the caravan van in the border uh, area the border crossers uh, the you know policing of that but i wanted to shed light into it with the policing of You know, uh, people who are already here, already within the internal borders of the US, how that works, Um, and then how asylum legalization also sustains, sort of uh, sustains this low wage uh, labor reserve of migrant uh, workers, like racialized migrant workers, and in this case, of the case uh, with the Nepali uh, migrants and asylum seekers is the case that I present. Um, so. This prolonged like i mentioned uh, you know the fact that this prolonged asylum seeking process and uh, um, legal limbo that people are in um, is not preventing right, migrants from seeking and obtaining employment low wage employment often under harsh conditions of physical and manual labor without any benefits or health care so that tells us that asylum process may not be actively creating a labor reserve but it definitely draws on this prolonged indefinite legal conditions and deepening sort of you know, migrants' recruitment into this precarious labor and livelihood. And this key argument in the book that, uh, is derived from ethnography among Nepali um, speaking migrants and asylum seekers. So, in the Nepali speaking community, for example, asylum seeking itself was, dis- was being discussed uh, as a type of labor, as a type of uh, work that is. Um, Non remunerable, right? And yet, it required this range of repeated and continuous suffering, and what they call uh, what culminated into uh, making paper. Like so, the uh, two concepts I developed, dukkha, uh, Nepali concepts of dukkha, suffering, and making paper. Like I was banani. That was actually one of the first one of the first articles I wrote right after finishing dissertation, and you know, and how. Um, so it has it's also it's that it's those two concepts that uh, provide let's say meat to the book right? like, uh, <clears throat> the two overlapping concepts that is developed in the book and ultimately how this individualized suffering accounts um, in asylum through seeking asylum and through work as they discuss as type of work because it's either interrupting their work or either they had to quit work their day job to do this kind of work so, They were still being articulated, people, you know, my informants were still articulating in terms of work. And then the community activists, organizers who I was working closely with were, you know, interpreting uh, and seeing it as how it has sort of a far reaching influence, a consequence for producing this, um, what I call a visibility of silent or suffering migrant community and practice of censorship that become the survival strategies for the community. And we'll talk more about it. I think in your other question about the visibility and the paradox of that visibility, when um, you know disengagement is not an option, then what are the terms and conditions in which you engage uh, in this case with the state or state authorities? So in this way, the this U.S. state actually provides opportunities to enable asylum claims that do not do like never counteract the le- labor productivity of these claimants, right? Um, although it continues, the state continues to restructure the pathways, realms, and these unequal terms through which these asylum claims can be um, made right, articulated or sustained during different political moments. So that's where I draw in the US uh, immigration history and asylum um, <clears throat> provisions and when Nepalese specifically became um, eligible for these provisions. Um, so this contributes to the key finding of the book basically Asylum in the U.S. as an important, yet often less understood part of this interior immigration enforcement within the borders. And um, um, along with that, the equally important um, case of the asylum backstage I talk about or um, that I think we'll discuss later again in your follow-up question, um, how the U.S. state uh, um, has mobilized uh, through asylum. Some issues to prominence like the culturally interpretable suffering performance that is infused with um, these clients' industriousness. Like you know, they're pay- as tax-paying workers, um, and hence making them claimant workers. So the whole asylum becomes part of uh, producing this claimant workers, and like that's uh, sort of inseparable from um, their daily labor outside of laboring for asylum during asylum, and as well as being mining workers. So. Um, That's the, um, that's the overall uh, argument on how Nepali case sort of shows that. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Yeah, great. Thank you for that. Um, That's a great overview for the book. And it helps us understand then, um, which I will ask you about the, you know, asylum backstage and people in these protracted asylum cases that you kind of take us through in the different chapters of the book. But I wanted to also just begin with the the book um, and the the community, the Nepali community that you're that you're talking about, um, because you you open the book with the NGO Adhikar, which I think is where you were kind of based, um, and you talk about you know the book is. Nepali uh, Queens, I think, is where you were doing the research, and so I noticed in the book you have multiple photos in the book. But the first photo is the door of Adhikar, which is the organization. And then I love it because the book kind of takes us through the door and into the organization and like into this like larger Nepali community in um, in Queens, which I don't, which possibly one may not necessarily know is such a thriving presence in the city if if one is not already a part of the community or or already knows about it. Um, And so I I love how you take us through the door and you take us into this community. So I wondered if you could talk about um, what was Adhikar and, you know, how did it figure into your research?
1: yeah thank you um when I, when I read the yeah the question is uh, really nicely put i you know the whole the framing of questions evocatively and yeah providing that nice visual for uh, our audience and listeners um uh, honestly, I will not take credit that that was intentional like that was your first photo in the book and and you know unfortunately it's not colored right so it's the red door uh, with a, a sign of adhikar it's written in Nepali and in english um then it actually become a part of my daily routine for two almost three years Like volunteering with different workers rights programs and facilitating especially facilitating english uh, english language classes there so um and you're absolutely right you know it, it sort of it, it metaphorically speaking it, the door that door also opened doors you know for me to the social world of um community members activists and uh, volunteers organizers uh, who were aware of many of its members' dilemmas that, as, that I talk about in the book, their struggles and kind of exploitative labor conditions that they were part of. So <clears throat> in many ways, I had the opportunity then to learn of the diverse and unequal conditions of Nepali-speaking community or my uh, people um, who did not come from urban centers like Kathmandu, like my family did, right, or any other cities. Uh, major cities, but were from uh, different parts of Nepal, regions of Nepal, uh, North India, Tibet, and Bhutan. So you can say that um, while I did not do the, um, you know, um, conventional village anthropology in Nepal, (laughs) I was equally, I should actually be learning more so about the regional linguistic and ethnic diversity and longstanding historical inequalities that uh, uh, in these regions um, are continuing to Play out in the diaspora, and their are very different experience of legalisation, migration uh, trajectories, and through the uh, through um, Adhikar colleagues, um, activists, uh, fellow volunteers, I was also confronted you know, with the privilege that came from my cap- cultural capital and education background in Nepal. So, you know, in the first question I talked about sort of the marginalised experiences of. Uh, uh, immigrants, but also there's like this privilege right, confronting, okay, well, how do you, and um, especially in my conversation with activists, and so learning community organizers like um, and and uh, the founder of Adhikar, uh, Luna, yeah, she's actually a long time friend. I knew her from before. Um, she started Adhikar. So when I was conducting field uh, research uh, and living in Queens It was uh, at the same time that Adhikar was founded in two thousand five. So we were already, you know, I was already part of the conversation with the uh, with the Nepali and uh, the South Asian migrant advocate uh, groups and all and grassroots organizations. And um, at the time, Duna with her colleagues, you know, they had uh, they were already sort of preparing like, to establish Adhikar in two thousand five, and I started um, uh, my program. Uh, I joined Cornell's program in 2006, so in that year, I was already aware of the organization's work, volunteering and um, you know raising awareness in the communities, and actually going from like door to door. Like Luna and her colleagues, like their you know, friends were going really door to door uh, to map out what were the uh, the hurdles, the challenges, you know, people face, especially so they're looking at the labor exploitation and um, lack of healthcare, you know, lack of um, sort of having information and language class or like not having a language was obviously one of the hindrance for the, lot uh, of its community members. So I was already aware of that work. And like I said, you know, previously um, when I entered an anthropology, anthropology program, it was sort of my interest to just go to Nepal back and forth. And, um, but because I'd already been aware of the organization's work and people who were invested during my time in New York City, or every time I visited from Ithaca, I was still, you know, I would go to these events. I, think I would organize for its uh, community members um, workshops. So but that was, I guess, yeah. That was was. I was already aware of it, and then in the book, um, I wanted to um, kind of um, show and. Um, the audience, the readers, that, you know, it, it was through literally entering that door um, that a lot of doors opened uh, for me as, as a researcher, as an ethnographer, to not only talk to the uh, activists um, and all community organizers, but also its members who, you know, who, were, uh, who were visiting you know, on a regular basis and then become actively part of the, the community itself. And, and chapter two in the book, is where I detail Adhikar's work. Right after coming to that work, uh, through the in, into the world of Adhikar and through his program, and I wanted to sort of document how like these uh, the seemingly kind of mundane commentaries that people were making about workplace grievances and, and that the fact that they had to learn English um, um, are actually key to understanding sort of the pervasive and ordinary forms of suffering that working class non English speakers. And uh, migrants and uh, asylum claimants disp- disproportionately experience. So, at the same time, through that work, I was also I got, uh, was volunteering uh, or interpreting, rather, in different contexts. So, as, as I was teaching English or uh, volunteering in the uh, community center, I was also uh, interpreting for people in hospitals and schools, and then and slowly in these uh, asylum institutions through human rights agencies and. You know, at the time, um, so really it, through Adhikar is where I had um, entered this different world of um, Nepali uh, migrants and refugees and asylum seekers that I had I, I just not thought about before, right? and the things we take it for granted, um, and how that um, that their whole lives and livelihood depended on that. Um, so then. So the, that's why the book kind of through the book, I kind of want to also trace my own journey, journey and then uh, present, present it to the audience. And um, uh, just like the way I, I sort of experienced, if if that makes sense, you know, I came, became aware of their other world, sort of not just the labor, but the legal labor that they were doing in these asylum institutions. And then to come back, and then it was precisely uh, then coming back and then re engaging with the community members, activists, and uh, in chapters five and six when it circles back to um, like digging deeper into the work that activist organizers uh, and community members were doing and it then became a dialogue and it's in it so it's in some ways it's not an end I, you know it's a continuation of these uh, um, dilemmas not only for the community members but also community organizers and activists they continue to do like the kind of work they do and then it's an opening so the conclusion is also an opening to uh, um, a continuous dialogue and off these uh, silenced or silent sort of workers and that they're serving that they're um, assisting with so um so yes the work of activists and community organizers like uh, leaders like luna and arbada maybe all the you know i don't talk about everybody but those two i you know i had the most um i spent most of time most of my time with them um learning Talking to them and I continue to yeah uh, be amazed by you know their their different I guess positions social positions in the community, but also this drive to um, um make lives better or easier and um, so they're the host of the whole stuff, it's, it has expanded now the community center at the time I was volunteering so almost a decade ago right, two three years. 11, 12, 13 um, was a single story, now it's two story and then there are different kinds of other, other issues that um, they're assisting uh, mem- you know Nepalese with um, one of them is the uh, the TPS temporary protective status that they're fighting for, so you can yeah go to Adhikar's work, so it's, you know, it's ongoing I think as, as ethnographers we all know we collect data, it's particularly period in time and then all people's lives continue and then um, some of us get the opportunity to do follow-up and others um, although I've moved away uh, and I'm not in touch with them so I continue to engage with them Um, um, and that has had a yeah biggest impact on my own uh, I think uh, research
0: Mm -hmm. so the organizers I'm sure are still there organizing and um, you know working away and as you said the you know, we kind of come, come in and out, but obviously the same issues continue and the organizations continue there as well. Um, so I wanted to also ask about a kind of a, it's another like contextual question, I guess, where um, the book is also a story of migration and community. Um, and we talked about asylum, but of course, before people are going to, uh, try to, you know, go through the, the asylum process, they have to, of course, migrate um, to the United States. And so I wanted to ask, um, when did Nepalis begin migrating to the U.S.? And um, in the book, you know, you, you break migration into three different groups of migrants um, over different time periods. And so I wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about this migration and what pushed Nepalis um, out of the country and into the United States.
1: Um, sure yeah thank you for that uh contextual question again um so i i you're right. I break it down into three groups or three generations um, because so nepali migration to the u s um uh, it the first group that uh, um entail those arriving as um, actually graduate students or post yeah postgraduate. And professionals in the develop uh, sort of the development area, or what I call development decade, nineteen fifties to sixties, where USAID had its <clears throat> office in, in in Nepal, and they were through Fulbright and all these other programs that you're aware of, right? Like bringing in postgraduate students and then professionals, and some of them stayed legalized uh, there. Um, uh, status and uh, some of my um, relatives who I actually met in the US did that. Think, uh, and so yeah. there's that that group or generation. So mostly uh, middle class, urban, educated elite um, um, from city sort of the centers, yeah, centers like Kathmandu. And the second group or second generation entailed the families and extended relatives of these naturalized uh, citizens uh, who become natural citizens. And where my family came in in the 90s um but also it was through a reuni- family reunification, and meanwhile the student and work visa sponsorships continued through the nineties and um maybe our some of our um listeners' audience already know there was a the decade long uh, civil war in nepal between nineteen ninety uh four ninety five to two thousand five two thousand six um which coincided obviously with the um, <clears throat> events of 9/11 2001 in the. US. So that's when uh, well making Nepalis really both al- already in the country who were holding either irregular statuses or, the, or those newly um, arrived and looking to regularize like reg- regularize their status, they were they became eligible for asylum provisions um, because Gu themawa Civil War then came under the terrorist uh, label. And all the problems uh, that go along with it, but uh, (laughs) so that's when the provision, asylum provision, become you know more um, available. Let's say for Nepali population, and it's it's actually not just his you know specific history of Nepali, uh, but if you look at the asylum provisions, who were the first uh, people who became eligible population, Latino, right, Um, the Colombian. Um, um, So we won't go into that, but the Nepalis only became. Um, eligible after, obviously after the, the Civil War uh, or during that period. So at the same time, they also had diversity. And the U.S. does diversity visas um, around the world. But the post-9-11 decade um, in the U.S., when it was going through sort of socioeconomic and political transformations, the INS, or Immigration and Naturalization Service, introduced the Homeland Security Act right, in 2002. So this place, the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, now what we call ICE, and Customs and Border Protection, directly in charge of asylum decisions. So after that, it was more. You know, it wasn't that people um, weren't legalizing through asylum, but it was very small number of people legalizing or seeking asylum. But that decade, two thousand one to twenty ten, and my research started in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, when a lot of people were. Sort of, uh, you know, doing asylum or seeking um, asylum to legalize their status. So, so those are the those are the three uh, period I kind of um, divide um, and mass migration of Nepalese and continue to. I mean, I think now we can add the fourth generation after um, after the earthquake in Nepal in twenty fifteen. So those are the ones who are now you know, have been in the country. Um, eligible for or see temporary protected status and, and so it's an ongoing but um, I guess one of the uh, one of the things I want to do in the book was not to isolate the context for Nepali migration just in the Nepali political history but also you know in dialogue with what was happening in the U.S. why U.S. U.S. was not the only place that Nepalese right? it's actually um Everywhere else, but the mass migration and what pushed Nepali, what do you call the mass migration of Nepalis, what pushed Nepalese out of the country, was uh, arguably this decade-long civil war and um, the decade after the civil war, the reconstruction period where there's no like impl- under, uh, yeah un- uh, unemployment and all the political instability, and that, that's like the standard narrative of why Nepalis migrate and. In the meantime, you have you continue to do seek out student visas and work fee sponsorships, family unifications. Those all uh, continue. Um, and as I'm learning, that I've been uh, living outside the US for a decade and in other countries where you know mass migration of Nepali started at a different political moment, depending on the immigration policies and labor laws of that country. So in Japan, has a you know, very specific history of this. Um, that uh, intake Nepalis through student visas, for instance. Um, so, so yeah. But going back to the book, um, since the the research actual research uh, or conducted you know end, uh, ends up to uh, 2013 I don't go on and talk about the uh, the incoming Nepalis, for instance. right? Like the uh, after 2014, 2015, uh, 2015, sorry after the uh, major earthquake. In Nepal, and that's another driving force: uh, natural disasters and um, continued political disasters, I, uh, I suppose. But um, to the US, these are the yeah three contexts that I um, map out in the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so the the that's that's really important because the as you as you said, the Civil War seems to be one of the main. Um, uh, events like it's a ten-year, ten-year ten civil war that's pushing people um, out of the country, and it seemed to also, you know, come up in these asylum cases. Of course, that you were following in the book as well, and so, um, and so, I wanted to turn to your analysis of asylum because uh, many of your participants were, of course, seeking asylum, as you just said, and you accompany them. Um, through, you know, through the process of seeking asylum as an interpreter. And and so this involves these long drawn out series of like filing forms, preparing their testimony, discerning what constitutes suffering for asylum purposes. And so it really comes across in the book as this protracted process that requires a lot from the, from the person who's, you know, who's seeking asylum. And so you talk about this concept in the book called the asylum backstage, um, and I'm putting that in quotes, um, because it's your concept that you develop in chapter four. And, you know, and so you take us through these different stages of the process. And so what is the asylum backstage? And um, can you tell us a little bit about what happens there?
1: Yeah, thank you, Regan, I think, you know, uh, for this important question and pulling out like, yeah, this concept of asylum backstage. Where I was also immersed as an interpreter, like you said, pointed out, a Nepali English interpreter, and uh, witnessing, observing, writing, uh, really talking <laughs> uh, for claimants and their lawyers in, um, in this asylum backstage. So, <clears throat> as you rightly mentioned, people are going through these various stages, like the screening stages, eligibility interviews. And I, you know, um, after interpreting and um, when I had the data and what well, it wasn't during dissertation writing, but really when I was writing the book, it, it sort of slowly, <laughs> you get some distance from it. Then you realize, oh, you know, these are the different stages. If I break it down, it's much more easier to understand. And it also goes back to the question about how was asylum seeking a labor and, you know, where does this labor take place and whose labor and and who uh, who its audience uh, audiences are for this labor. So this asylum backstage, um, i broken down into four asylum backstage. So first is when uh, claimants, or Nepali claimants in this case, are going through this initial uh, screening and eligibility, like if they're just seeing if they're eligible to uh, file asylum or not. And th- this happened in um, human rights um, agencies, um, so the, and this is this is where um you know um the claimant who, who goes through this like a whole host of uh, questions about their life history about their, their lives in Nepal why they migrated, uh, um you know what, so if they're eligible what, on what grounds they're seeking asylum, so that that's where this happens. And in these, uh, <clears throat> once they've passed the screening stage and eligibility interview, um, it's the asylum backstage two right, where they get to their cases get transferred to uh, law firms, private law firms, and these are all uh, litigators, like pro bono uh, legal assistance they receive. Um, while it doesn't necessarily guarantee, as you see, you know, claimants um, of, of people obtaining asylum, but it does. Nonetheless, uh, provide them with a chance of being in the pathway for, but potentially, and this is all this potential, <laughs> um, the space where yeah, it provides this, but they can potentially obtain asylum. Uh, but before I actually say, uh, go into backstage, I want to mention that this is these are all what its real uh, government talk uh, categorizes it affirmative frames so the defensive asylum frames and affirmative asylum frame the book discusses you know in detail uh, defensive are the ones they're rejected in, uh, you know in the borders or when the people arrive immediately and then they have to so that's a defensive frame the asylum affirmative frame came much later actually it was introduced only in the 90s um, i think <laughs> um anyway you know, the chapter talks about that so, and I was, because I was interpreting um, um, in human rights agencies, you know, also through Adhikar, like in these human rights agencies, um, it was all affirmative cases, uh, affirm- affirmative frame that were being applied to the asylum. People have been living in the country for a long time and then seeking asylum afterward, uh, or they had been, you know, been, um, they, were, they were trying to change their visa from their religious visa to uh, asylum the uh, asylum, like legal, uh, so legalization in different uh, um, stages. So asylum backstage uh, two. that I started categorizing, where they are actually meeting, uh, uh, not just lawyers, but lawyers are putting together the affidavit, the case for them, and then you know all these claimants are all they have to meet expert witnesses. I, I think I don't. I maybe we'll talk about it later. But the case you saw with. Uh, cheering's case where you know you're meeting medical professionals uh, psychologists and country research uh, country what they call country uh, country condition report writers um, um and sometimes actually anthropologists are right like say you know um kind of corroborating and saying yes this happened in this time this location like the mouse attack so like all all these documents are being collected on behalf of this claimant and the claimant goes through a lot of uh interviewing like questioning like by like different um like medic yeah for medical practitioners professionals to uh, um, expert witnesses that are arranged for them and i you know you know you're interpreting so in some cases i interpreted in the hospitals also to kind of corroborate like their you know the scars that were sustained from the said events in, you two thousand four, two thousand five. Is yes, from this uh, gunshot or wound and all of that. So, I and mean, in these law firms, like, I slowly, you know, realize that the claimant is actually instructed on right, how to narrate this account. And then I, ca- I call it suffering account, like repeatedly, right? and these fragmentary narrations of this, you know, they're decontextualized images are converted into this coherent narrative and I mean, a lot of these silences um just like our interview like i would question your silences moments of abrupt uh, interruptions they're all kind of packaged into a nice uh, uh, smooth affidavit and you know but at the same time what this means is that these asylum backstages also um, um overlook or you know uh, disregard misinterpreted possibilities that occur the entire time not 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 only because of the language that you know claimant was speaking nepali i was then translating into back into back to uh, english uh, english to lawyers and advocates and then they were then you know telling me what to tell the claimants and i was then um <laughs> repeating their uh, back in uh, nepali so that it wasn't just uh, language uh, possible misinterpreted possibilities of language that i was I witnessed. It was just the even the whole concept of how suffering has come to be imagined or what kind of persecution and the, su- the suffering based on said persecution are imagined by all these, you know, hosts of uh, people assisting asylum seekers. So there's also that that going on. And then I thought, oh, in all the asylum literature, its onus is always on the asylum claimant or even in the anthropological literature on asylum in the US and Europe. You talk about the narrative... Um, you know, performance, the narrative, the the misinterpreted possibilities in the courtrooms, in the asylum offices. And I said, well, hold on a minute. Like, what, you know, this important backstage that happens, it's not only the claimants that are performing, the lawyers are performing, right? The um, human rights agents are performing, like, you know, and without, you know, actually, they have a role also in this performance. They're the writer, script writer, whatever you call it, right? That's where I, talk about the co-construction of these testimonies and suffering and um so that, that to me was very interesting and kind of it, it, you know the beginning was just mind-boggling so I had to just come back and just write about it just to process it's like oh, I'm also participating in this narrative right and one um, and one of my informants actually said oh now well, you're also part of my story and 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 I think I wanted to bring that um out in the book like you know you have to consider what happens in these backstage and so documentation for instance documentation of I-589 form or application form for asylum and withholding of removal um and you know the that the, what what is categorized as asylum backstage 3 in the book uh, there's uh, so many people um, and so many hours of week months 6 months spent on that two questions you know the said persecution and the two questions you spend really up to a year answering that question and repeatedly. And then, um, you know, the, um, if basically the past persecution and um, the, the possibility of um, future persecution if sent back, those are the two questions that lawyers and uh, once it reaches the private law firm that they really dwell on. And, you know, and um, in some ways, I almost saw... Um, lawyers being more tensed and anxious to get you know words out of the claimants right Than than the clients they're like oh my god i have to go back to my work and you know this is taking so much of my time and that's why you know that's how it actually started becoming free labor on the part of the claimants and and for what like without knowing whether or not they'll actually get asylum so that's that's why i thought you know the backstage is that i uh, that's what's happening like the the other actors involved in constructing this testimonies that are being delivered in courtrooms and delivered in um, asylum offices and it's not a, just in a work of one person one claimant but it goes through so many reincarnation kind of like a book you know from the time you conceptualize and the time you do research and collect data and interpret and um except you have control of the narrative of the book um and here it's you know it's an affidavit is sort of like book for clients where so many people have entered and they, they and after going through asylum like asylum work or in these backstage for sometimes for years uh, sometimes it's short six months but a year two years and I've seen up to you know four years three four years where people are like well you know I'm, I can't be recollecting you know like my memory from what happened ten years ago I've been living in the US and going through much more you know hardship I had like other priorities like I have to you know Works and money home, so that's where I saw you know people kind of um, um, navigate and have a difficult time navigating. This is backstage And the final backstage. asylum backstage is the witness preparation sessions where they really grilled and you know, they get uh, or pre- get prepared for cross examination in the courtroom and uh, asylum offices. And then you know when you get there, even so. As an interpreter, I was also invested like right? uh, lawyers actually one lawyer even you know mentioned <laughs> you know when the person when the client becomes emotional, can you also be emotional not be like stoic you know so like all these various instructions to me as well so um, and I thought okay this these are the important stages that i don't see i don't read about it in in the asylum literature in anthropology or. Um, you know, what happens before the decision is made or, or during the courtroom um, hearing or asylum interview. It's like a, it's a lot going on. And then that this work that's going on from both uh, clients and um, lawyers, advocates, interpreters is just equally important that contributes to that understanding the asylum framework and asylum, um, um, or or at least open a conversation again in that sense. This less understood um, bureaucratic um, stages of asylum and people there. People are doing it, you know, in the context of the Europe. But they, you know, have interviewed asylum officers and like the decision making that they go through and how it's part of all the work that they do. But I thought the asylum backstage in carving out these specific. Backstage and where claimants met with clients and interpreter, all these vices, um, you know misinterpretations that happen. I wanted to show it the way they work, they work out, and from all sides and and the the kind of suffering imaginations that people have from in human rights agencies to law firms to finally even the judge. Right, and and this its onus is on the claimant to perform. Uh, in a particular way, or his performance sort of is scrutinized. Yet, other people, you know, it doesn't affect other people, and where all of us are performing in this act. So, so I yeah I wanted to to bring that out and um, um in the book and just leave it uh, for really readers to go through these. Uh, um, Backstage, like this, these different stages of backstage, and kind of uh, worked each like it entailed, um, and how they uh, people become sort of um, entangled, you know, for years, and like this, this, this is how the protracted legality works. You know, when you see protracted legality, well, this is how it works, and um, you know, and after all this, they might still not get asylum. Um, so I don't know if that. Yeah, And um The importance of backstage, yeah, uh, sort of um, categorizing or mm-hmm. looking at backstage.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great uh, description, and that was really fascinating. Um, you telling us right now, but also reading it in the book was just—it um, was that was really an engrossing. Part I was, you know, going through each section, and and you follow these different cases through and tell us about you and you know. You know your role in it and bringing in all these different people so that was a really really fascinating part of the book and of the narrative um and i think you also just talked about this protracted legality which might then lead to this kind of tie back into the argument of the book um because and we kind of talked about this earlier another aspect of asylum that comes across is that asylum seeking is work and so i took a quote from you and this is kind of in chapter five um, you write asylum seeking came to be interpreted on the same continuum as other work that takes uh, people's time. And so um, and so and I, I think this you can kind of see this again in what you're talking about these like these six month, a year, two year cases um, or, or longer. Um, and so how was asylum like another job or another form of work for the for the people seeking it?
1: thank you for pulling out that quote, and um, you know the asylum seeking how it came to be interpreted on the same continuum as other work. Um, and it's only later right, talking about asylum backstage that also once I was already uh, enmeshed in people's lives and clients that the asylum they would often talk about how much work they had to do or how hard they worked, but. Uh, so my Nepali-speaking informants right, pointed out that uh, making paper again, like this uh, or legal asylum legalization through pro bono legal assistance was, uh, was not a readily available option for many, many of them. So my interaction with people outside Adhikar and outside asylum interpretation context made me aware of this sort of uh, potentially you know, double line situation for people who had been living, and they're already working in the country for almost a decade, and because of the uh, you know uh, immigration stringent immigration laws and like uh, staying undocumented or this from temporary visa to temporary visa was being more and more difficult. Right? And then so so one of the most common uh, reasons people come, uh, contemplated was whether to embark on this asylum process. They already knew it was going to be difficult, um, and it was closely related to uh, to their. A temporary and precarious working circumstances. So, for example, you know, people who are already in the in precarious uh, jobs in service sectors. Then, you know, taking time off, like for whenever lawyers ask them to show up and um, and the kind of preparation they had to do, like either to um, prepare um, their their affidavit and the questions they were being asked and how to answer them, like the rehearsing for them, rehearsing for these. Um, the testimonies and whatnot, it demanded, of, you know, it's a, a lot of demand on people's time. So, if he, you know, a lot of my informants were working in service sectors, domestic workers, and um, restaurant workers. So they can't like just in a minute notice kind of say, oh, I can't come to work. You know, I'm, you know you can't do that. You can only use sick leave for so many, you know, and, uh, so many times and excuses. So, so it was not only uh, demanding time right? The, the asylum seeking wasn't just demand uh, on their time, but also taking away from the, their actual work that they were doing. And then, then slowly, obviously, then the, the you know, people felt, well, this is the work I'm doing. And it's free. I don't know if I'll get asylum, if I'll become, you know, I, 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 it'll put me to path, put me on a path to um, um, obtaining a legal residency, but I have to, nonetheless I have to do this, right? And so so uh, to begin from um, how it's like work is, for instance, they had to find first locating resourceful individuals within the community right, or their supporters um, and uh, like human rights agencies right, or, or people who knew about them. So just like employment, this was an important preliminary step to begin this process of uh, asylum legalization or making paper. So, informants have, who had relied on kinship network or assistance from a powerful a community member or leader, right? they had to locate lawyers to process paperwork. And um, so they talked about this difficult and long term financial investment. The um, pro bono lawyers, pro bono legal assistance, it's affirmative cases, but there was a lot of people who had also gone through private lawyers and had really uh, lost all their money, all the savings uh, paying lawyers and um, you know, associates to help them find legal assistance and representation. And I think uh, the case of Mina Lidi um, is a good example in the book where you know, besides this explicit and implicit nature of wor- uh, work of seeking asylum, uh, for, for, for many of my informants, the asylum advocates, uh, uh, human rights lawyers, this includes human rights lawyers, uh, litigators in private law firms, uh, it was also work for them. Like their professional career and advancement um, and work of identity. So in, the, in those two uh, chapters, um, the credibility establishing, at least the logic of claiming credibility, for instance, uh, it provides a glimpse into the work of uh, asylum assistants, let's say asylum advocates, the human rights agents and the, the lawyers. And so I also wanted to show that world to the readers I because I was immersed into both in these asylum backstage. So the work in that regard was for both parties and and me as well. So, um, so one of the reasons I wanted to um, show that the 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 logic of claim through the logic of claim and credibility chapter, the work that asylum officers, asylum uh, sorry, asylum lawyers were doing, and human rights advocates is that they, you know, for them, it's like their professional. Work identity, but for the clients who are, you know, they didn't think about the clients were also working. right They, like they, how they had been, they had to leave jobs, for instance, or be unemployed, and um, you know, potentially, uh, w- which meant that they they cannot send money home if you're unemployed, and if your job is so, uh, um, you know, being interrupted that you can't hold a stable job anyway. So you know. That that part, so how this was this unequal. Um, I wanted to show that um, unequal terms and conditions of labor through that asylum labor. So it was on both part as asylum seeking and asylum assisting was work, but had different um, um, end result. a different consequence for these two different parties. But uh, so initially, I um, I didn't think the chapter, the, the logic of claim credibility, sort of uh, fit into the flow and content of Nepalese migration story, asylum legalization um, but then you know as it, the book came together I realized no it actually fits very well in this larger narrative of asylum migrants and uh, asylum uh, migrants and asylum seekers because well, their work of suffering and incorporation into labor precariousness you know were being directed by being instructed by these other actors you know, um, and who also considered who also considered their work, So the chapter in some ways provided the missing link, you know, like a connecting thread, if that makes sense, between the first half of the book that talks about the Nepali diaspora, their migration history, and the second half that slowly takes the audience deeper into the forms and content of their, uh, um, like, uh, legalization, this work of making paper and the suffering, that the logic that they, you know, these suffering testimonies that are being co-constructed, performed, delivered, in these uh, institutions, asylum institutions were for this you know, for this audience. So through that chapter, then I sort of look at how credibility in asylum allows these powerful social actors to impose um, not knowing sometimes like right, their decisions, um, and how it their decisions have a, uh, have an impact on uh, on claimants, not only in terms of their legal legality, uh, but also in terms of their livelihood and uh, and and the, the social social world so and more and more um outside adhikar you know people would just talk about well i work hard you know the work i do at um, um somebody's house or in the restaurants yeah that's work that everybody does like i have to do this hard work but the asylum work so you know that disrupted like you know it was sort of free work that they felt they were doing like they had to um do everything to find (laughs) um it was very similar to finding like looking for a job and uh, seeking employment but like a free labor that they were part of Um, so uh, yeah that that, that's that's how um um, i guess that's one example of how that that became like work and intervened in their daily work Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I thought I thought the book um, fit together well. Nothing stuck out to me as not, you know, not fitting into the into the larger narrative of the book. Um, and I thought you wove the book together really well. In that we're we're talking less about the um, the English language interpretation classes that you taught, but you also talk about that in the book, and and readers can, you know, obviously you know, buy the book and read it to, to learn more about that, as well as more about what you talk about with asylum. Um, but I also wanted to kind of turn the question to you as the researcher, and you just talked about how you were immersed in both worlds um, with the uh, interpretation and the, the poly community. And I wanted to ask you about your positionality as a researcher and an ethnographer, um, because you say that... Um, so you were kind of acting as an interpreter through these asylum seekers, and as a teacher of, of English, and so you were kind of facilitating Nepali's integration into the, into the United States through translation. And that you and you mentioned, um, I think in the beginning of the book, that you were a quote participant interpreter instead of. Or maybe in addition to being a participant observer, and so you know most anthropologists would or ethnographers would think about what we do as participant observation, where we sit and observe and and maybe you know participate in these different activities that we're researching. But you use the term participant interpreter, and so I wondered what were the particularities of this kind of research, and um, can you share any any challenges or opportunities to to you doing this research?
1: Yeah. Um... Certainly I um I think I'd start uh by saying, you know, when I first started interpreting, um it seemed like everything that an ethnographic research was not supposed to be precisely because, as you pointed out, we know about participant observer observation you observe for us, participate in your own time and ask questions, come back to it and um, that I was doing through Adhikar and um you know. Uh, my English language uh, classes and workers' rights programs, whatnot. But here in the in the asylum institutions, um i yeah I wasn't a participant interpreter. And what I mean by that is that I, I, I had no time, right? I, I, I had to interpret, speak literally to first and observe and reflect later on my participation. So there was no time to kind of dwell extensively and ask questions. Lawyers were asking questions. I had to interpret immediately. So, you know, I didn't have at that time. I didn't have the prolonged uh, let's say observation and probe, um, you know, let alone analyze the situation. Um, I think uh, I, I talk about it in the book that I was literally to be heard as an echo for both parties, you know, once they'd finished their sentences, whether statements and, And there are times when, you know, the lawyers would sort of uh, intervene and instruct. No, you just interpret. Say exactly what the person is saying. You don't need to clarify. And then there were others, you know, who would ask me to sort of put it in a context for them. Like I was also a culture interpreter because you're an uh, anthropologist and they knew. It's like, oh, so, you know, can you provide a context for it? So someone wanted me to do elaborate work. Uh, But all the time, sort of that, you know, participation or nonstop. Uh, interpretation was at the f- uh, forefront of this work, and observation came much later. And second, um, in this uh, asylum, actually, uh, the asylum institution spaces where I was interpreting and really observing later, where you know my particip- participation was so pronounced, uh, that it gradually became a very important backdrop. To collect data of Nepalis in New York, like, it, this this was the life of Nepali New Yorkers day to day. Besides working in these you know low uh, wage um, employment sectors, service sectors, they this is something else that they were doing, which they described as work, and and how they were doing it. So it became an important part of collecting data, so to speak. And as much later as I found, you know, myself while interpreting for claimants and their human rights advocates, um, that. Then I sought out to then interview um, claimants um, as well as uh, their lawyers. So these, um, again, these were not you know, the interpretation itself was never sort of a two way conversation, but a three way ongoing, you know, three way conversation. That my role it, at the time it seemed like it never ended, because I was interpreting, whether I was a culture mediator, depending on what people um expected and then um uh, vocalized that i you know m- need to do that my role have to be and the dilemmas of course is that you know uh one of the dilemmas at the time was you know how my interpretation would negatively affect the cases or the um the client's claims um and not so much of misinterpretation but not uh, you know not misinterpretation or um but really, I had to um, think about the larger consequence for um, for them, and not just the immediate. You know, dwell in that immediate um, case, immediate uh, interpretation session. So, because I was already uh, involved with Adhikar's work, and then um, the migrants, and go the whole host of other issues that they face. So, uh, you know, I had to put that that context. gave me uh, kind of a larger sort of, uh, <laughs> to help me leave, you know, that, uh, specific case or session to think about the, uh, uh, larger consequence for people. And, um, the so dilemma is, oh, so, you know, I uh, declined to be actually a court interpreter. So I was like, I, I, you know, or asylum in the asylum office, uh, um, the court also assigns their own interpreter, asylum interpreter, um, and I declined uh, because I, you know, because of my misunderstanding or not, uh, you know, wrong choice of wrong word, you, you know, somebody's <laughs> uh, life is really you know, uh, in line, you know, so, um, so that that was a special challenge. But the opportunity, of course, was, you know, that allowed me in this to observe and participate in this processual stage of um, um, testimonies being co-constructed. And how it actually happened in these asylum spaces, from the minute you know um, a claim is filed, and how it sort of goes through various incarnations, uh, the various versions, and depending on you know who comes in, the lawyers who would come and go, and different uh, people working on this um on these claims uh, or all these uh building this affidavit and training or really disciplining um clients for witness uh, preparation. So, yeah, so that that was the opportunity, right? It it allowed me to analyze the importance of this asylum backstage work and uh, claimant testimony and the larger asylum seeking process. So more broadly, uh, through this uh, positionality, as you rightly pointed out, an extended immersion in the asylum interpretation, I was um, also able to document, you know, like uh, socio-legal practice of like their own internal um, what do you call uh, terms and conditions of suffering and depending on uh, and contradictions like, or cred- terms of credibility, suffering. It's a, a, it's very abstract. So how do you actually pin it down? And then you know, uh, it gave me an opportunity to sort of, kind of um, I wouldn't say think like lawyers, but I was talking to lawyers a lot and understanding what their own background and why they got into asylum. What about asylum? They, they interested them. Um, or assisting asylum seekers. And um, so so it gave that opportunity where, you know, when um, actually one of the lawyers said, oh, why are you doing anthropology? You know, you can be a lawyer. Like, <laughs> it's, 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 I'll never forget that. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. So, um, so that, there was that opportunity, I guess. Yeah, I can. <laughs> um, um, and I mean, I think to put it back to our um, anthropology, anthropology uh, debate on you know native anthropologists the uh, uh, famous uh, article by kirin that everybody quotes how native is the native anthropologist i was and i always say i'm um, you know i'm a semi-native anthropo- anthropologist in these uh, various um spaces uh, whether it's a sort of a distant um, in, um i guess a knowledgeable outsider or a distant insider for nepali's uh and claimants uh, of you know, nepali asylum seekers um because i grew up in the U- in the us so they were like oh you know the system so you t- you tell them you know what our real problem is that that kind of some people <laughs> had that expectations also but also as a quote-unquote like unknowledgeable um outsider for um lawyers and you know saying oh you give us context for uh, the nepal and history and you know like what this person is saying to help us understand like in a matter of, I don't know, days um, or months. And I mean, I, I, I won't lie, but I did um, send them some of the articles, like anthropology articles about Nepal. And, you know, one lawyer even saying, well, the judge will not know where Nepal is or if Nepal is a country. So the person has to act in a particular way that he or she can imagine the suffering. And, you know, then you're just like, wow, wow. You know, then I, I know I remember just in my head, I thought I was thinking, shouldn't I be interpreting for the judge then? Really, <laughs> you know, um,
0: yeah, so yeah, no, that is that is fascinating <laughs> um, when you say that the person was like, you could be a lawyer, it's like the multiple <laughs> pathways yeah. not taken, and um, and I think it's interesting too because when you are an anthropologist um, or an ethnographer in general, um, in a certain place, you yourself learn another, you know, set of, you you learn to a certain extent, another aspect of expertise. Like you learn their language, like, like we always talk about, you know, and we always think, oh, the language is, is another language. It's Spanish or it's Portuguese or it's, it's, you know, it's the late, it's the language spoken, but no, it's also a professional language sometimes or particular terms that are used or, you know, trying to understand, okay, what do the lawyers want? Or, you know, what, what do, uh, what are these, these people like talking about as far as like the offices you're entering into? <laughs> um, you know, because it's not always a given, um, you know, what it is they're talking about. So, no, that's fascinating. And that comes across in the book too, where the book is very grounded ethnographically in the cases uh, that you're that you're talking about. Um. Thank you. Um, so I was gonna just pause. Take a um, break. Pause. Yeah. 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 I, I need to. Okay. Um, okay. So the book has a lot of photos in it from anti-car protests, um, teaching ESL, and other Nepali community activities. And um, Atacar, which we already talked about, the organization is working to educate migrants about employment issues, and and they're also working to meet their social and economic needs. Um, But they're also producing a kind of visibility for the Nepali community, which you talk about in the book. And so I was wondering, what are the complexities of this this visibility of the Nepali community that you find?
1: Uh, Great. Thank you uh, for that question, Regan. I think it is the one that I struggled with most while conducting field work, um, you know, after gathering data and ultimately deciding to write up my dissertation. And, um, you know, dissertation actually doesn't take up so much about the uh, Adhikar, uh, the visibility question at all. And then in the book, I des- I decided to bring it back to Adhikar and then what it means for the um, Nepali Population or this segment of Nepali-speaking population in New York City, or Nepali New Yorkers. So thank you for that. You know, allowing me to actually uh, respond to that question. And so, you know, through advocacy, like organizing, on mobilization, as you pointed out, about uh, raising awareness, but also you know educating about immigration laws, changing immigration laws and policies. Um, you know, keeping up with the policies themselves and. Um, um like english language or workers rights programs uh, and workshops were one of these but also sort of you know mobilizing people to demand for the right i go go to um, albany in these protests and big marches as you saw in the photos that you know, um that Dikar was uh, participating in along with other um grassroots and migrant um Grassroots organizations, immigrant rights organizations, sort of social justice human rights—you know all these uh, different groups of organizations. So there's also there's, a, uh, like me, these uh, Nepali uh, leaders, uh, community organizers, the activists were also interpreting, like, right, for the uh, broader groups of activists and migrant activist groups and organizations the the specific issues that Nepalis were facing. Right, So they they were also, you know, they also saw themselves as cultural mediators and interpreters. And I, you know, and I, I I mean, I join in that pool of um, interpreter in that level, in that sense as well. So they were keenly aware of their uh, relatively privileged position in becoming these designated or accidental cultural facilitator, interpreter, representatives to speak on behalf of, you know, the suffering members of the community. And, you know, always to sort of how to balance their, or leverage their privilege, let's say privileged social positions. And I saw that, and I'm also one of them, right, to what do, what did they want to get out of this visibility, you know, within the larger Asian American advocacy groups and uh, the activist world in New York and beyond New York and domestic uh, workers, um, organizations. And, you know, um, I think the similar... Dilemma or challenges that I we have as anthropologists also working in the community that what do we want there a lot of different things that you learn and once you immerse in the community and people their struggles their um, <coughs> issues and so I saw you know very um, sort of complementary to my own positions of what they were trying to do and then that's why I think it was important for me to in the book to come back to that question of now what does that mean then you know and also, I, I I was also in a sense because I had been working with Nepali um, um, migrants teaching language classes, but and all interpreting for them, you know during the asylum legalization, within but outside Adhikar. Also, uh, I was also an interpreter, internal interpreter for Adhikar. You know, because I was part of the board, also board member later, even and after the uh, no, no, con- discontinued as a board member, in a way saying this is what people are saying and these are the issues that people go through and, you know, like how to um, incorporate that, incorporate their voices within what Adhikar is trying to say so that it's legible for people, not only in the activist circle, academic circle, like the, um, you know, as I mentioned, the USCIS, the, you know, the official level, the policy makers. And so I really saw it as complementary. And I think before that, as an anthropologist, you're always like, oh, the, you know, the um, activists, advocates, they have their own uh, world. But I, I didn't really see that as being sort of uh, separate. And, you know, you're working towards similar goal, you know, vision, of course, the ways in which you were attaining or trying to reach that goal was different, because, you know, the activists, the organizers, they're up and in front. And, and as anthropologists, we're more sort of um, observing and we have this luxury almost right, to sort of just observe and ask people question what they're doing. And I think through my interpretation work, I, 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 I didn't have that opportunity. And I realized, oh, wow, you know, later on, that this is what just, you know, just participation nonstop and has, you know, these challenges and um, <clears throat> opportunities that they provide. So because I saw that, uh, I guess, let me put it, um, and it's another way, like I realized that disengagement, right, from this dominant form and narrative of migrant community or migrant suffering, is not possible. It's not a viable option. And the question was, you know, what forms of engagement do these, uh, you know, community activists, organizers, uh, leaders should, you know, take or they're taking, and what does it look like? I think that's what the uh, book was trying to do: both show both. Yes, for survival. Uh, community. This visibility has all these. Uh, they, you know, it's a paradox within a community, but also to show that there's mired uh, you know, diversity of um, voices, social positions, depending on their migration history, their settlement, their education, both in Nepal and um, you know and in the US, and and also you know can't obviously narrowly conceptualize, and neither the uh, organization like Adhikar or I am trying to say this is the last word on Nepali. You know, Nepalese in New York, Nepalis in the U.S., but a certain sort of segment of that population is going through. But, you know, that these differences in opinions, uh, ideological positions do not have to be a reason not to advocate, not to, um, you know, um, advocate for visibility. And in whatever language, however, um, maybe reducing, reductive it might be to uh, put forth, um issues that does you know that issues that do affect people in the larger community. So I saw so that you know that important role. and tied to that, um I, I mean I would just like to say that would tied to that visibility um, was the role of silence. i um, I noticed um I mean, I document, although not as an analytical entry point or you know framework I don't really discuss. Silence as a, the way I do suffering, or all these other um, concepts. Um, the important rule of silence, which was everywhere, is like you know this uh, ESL student participants, whether they're like interpreting um, or they're talking to me, and then then the silent gazes during um, class classroom that led me to their like real issue with language and work. Or in the asylum institutional uh, spaces where, you know, uh, sometimes uh, claimants and I would just look at each other in silence and I was like, is this for real? Like, you know, (laughs) we've gone through this uh, story a hundred times and then, you know, you still can't remember or, you you know, you're asking me to. So like, you know, those silences or just people kind of, uh, and claimants in these space, institutional spaces where, you know, they've worked so hard. Uh, They've been working physically doing manual labor and then they've asked to come to these um, sessions very alert attentive and you know they just sort of just remain kind of silent like silence is like this variation of uh, silence that I, I noted and in, in the book also so rather than isolate the silence um, as a you know as a literal act or absence of speech I consider and I you know I hope the readers find that too they consider silence as a presence, sort of beyond speech, you know, expression of the suffering testimonies or generalities um, of specific legalization expen- um, experience, but also the like, extensive, uh, you know, documentation of their lives and suffering. So in the tracing, like these silence acts and actions, um, how uh, migrant labor um, and their suffering through this asylum enforcement is continuously reproduced so so through the book I, I wanted to open up you know a um, space for this conversation on what does silently visible migrant community look like um, and more precisely what would that visibility in communities own terms look like and um, I think that the paradox of visibility as you uh, pointed out and I talk extensively in the book and coming back to Adhikar, its work, and uh, really um, sort of re-engaging with the community activists and organizers, um, I thought, would have you know provided a nice conclusion to or to the book to to uh, really look at visibility and not say you know this is the vinyl this, this is visibility of this provide producing this visibility. The organization is producing its visibility. It has its own um, conditions terms and conditions. And paradoxes like any others, um, like any other forms of visibility. So, you know, um, despite this visit, uh, the paradoxes, you, you, you know, the the important work that Adhikar is doing in terms of their ongoing social justice work, migrant um, workers' rights activism. Um, to me, again, uh, it was important, and I think it's a, it provides this important platform and voice for. Um, to connect with other um, marginalized, let's say, diaspora and migrant communities. Uh, and hopefully, you know, that. Uh, so, in, in, in that way, I think, yes, the paradox remains. And paradox uh, is precisely what makes, uh, you know, this uh, community s- sustain and survive, but um, in its own terms and conditions. And you continue to sort of uh, collaborate with them. And yeah.
0: I think I'll just end there okay thank you so much for this rich description of of your work and of the book um, and I know that people will really um, just really get a lot out of reading the book and reading about the the stories that you tell from the you know from the Nepali community um, and its relation to migration so the final, question I have, I guess, is now that surviving the sanctuary city is out in the world, um, what is the next project for you? Or, you know, what do you have on the horizon? Um, are you working on any projects now? Um, or what are you planning to do?
1: So um, since leaving the US uh, for the last 10 years, <laughs> almost 10 years now, um, I've been looking at uh, Nepali migration or migration trajectories in Southeast and East Asia. So I looked at uh, um, migration, Nepali migration to Malaysia, uh, an article um, it's already been accepted in current anthropology. So it'll come out. So looking more in uh, not so, uh, so much of migration or migrants, but the management of uh, infrastructure, migra- migration infrastructure is a whole literature out on migration infrastructure and how it functions in inter-Asian migration. So that's the project that I'm working on. And, Uh, I've I've been based in Japan for the last five and a half years or five years. So uh, looking at um, um, how um, Nepali student migration to Japan um, has been historic or contemporary Nepali student migration to Japan and education intermediaries, how they play a role um, in sustaining this inter-Asian migration, but larger migration infrastructure. So, you know, it's still... uh, builds on my interest in um, Nepali diaspora and migration, but less about uh, uh, migrants and more about the, the ways in which they are managed. In some ways, the book already, you know, working for that book, but that research, it already provided me with that window of like just whole host of people, institutional, private actors, managing, really managing low wage migrants. And so it's a continuation, I would say, um, of that. Uh, initial interest, but uh, in the context of uh, uh, Asia, inter-Asian mobilities, so that's, uh, yeah, so an article is uh, coming out next year, hopefully, uh, on this infrastructure mediation and um, migration infrastructure that is sustained, sort of to, you know, to how, yeah, labor, low-wage labor migration across <laughs> Asia is sustained, and Nepali case as an example. Hmm.
0: That sounds great. And congratulations. Congratulations on the book coming out, Surviving the Sanctuary City, but also congratulations on um, this article coming out in Current Anthropology. So we will be on the lookout for that. And um, thank you for discussing your book with us on the New Books Network. So I have been speaking with Dr. Tina Shrestha, the author of the book, Surviving the Sanctuary City, Asylum Seeking Work in Nepali, New York, published by the University of Washington Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Megan, for having me. And, you know, this, uh, um, this has been such a pleasure and um, so it's one of the you know first interviews I've done so on, on the book so it's it, it's great thank you very much for that yeah providing me with this uh, opportunity and the platform you know to um, say what yeah say what I'd like to say about the book besides what the book does and you know. For other readers and uh, hopefully there'll be a lot of a lot more readers and thank you for reading it so closely
0: (laughs) thank you no and I, i i know there will be more readers and uh thank you so much to listeners who are listening to this interview